In conversation. In conversation. In conversation. In conversation. In conversation with Peter von Tisenhausen, Skipping Stone. Welcome. As part of its ongoing community outreach and in-gallery interpretive initiatives, the Art Gallery of Alberta is producing a podcast series titled In Conversation. The series is designed to complement the interpretive content of AGA exhibitions by providing listeners with interviews from exhibiting artists and other creative professionals. Today is Thursday, December 21st, 2017. My name is Nam Kabeski and I will be conducting this interview with artist Peter von Tisenhausen. His exhibition, Songs for Pythagoras, opens to the public at the Art Gallery of Alberta on January 27th, 2018. Peter von Tisenhausen is a multidisciplinary artist based in Demet, Alberta. Over the course of his 30-year career, the land has been his primary inspiration with his work taking the form of painting, sculpture, video installation, performance, and community action. For this exhibition, von Tisenhausen was invited to transform the space of our third floor gallery. He presents an immersive experience in which visitors are taken on a journey to reflect upon our impact on our surroundings and nature. Von Tisenhausen's work contends with diverse themes, including time, the spirits, birth and death, nature and artifice, decay and regrowth. His methodology is characterized by a pursuit of ecological sustainability and an attempt to understand time and substance. Site specificity and site responsivity play integral parts in von Tisenhausen's practice. Hello, Peter. How are you? <laughs> Thank you for joining me in this conversation today. Before we begin, I would like to take the opportunity to acknowledge that we're sitting here at the Art Gallery of Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the original home of over 16 First Nations and a traditional meeting ground for Indigenous people. Honoring Treaty 6 publicly helps inspire mutual respect and shared understanding. After all, we're all treaty people and this ritual helps reminds us that our beginning nation-to-nation -nation relationship was one of alliance and, and sharing. So I would like to start the, um, the interview by asking you to, um, to introduce yourself and, and your artistic practice in your own words. Well, my name is Peter von Tiesenhausen. I, uh, I work in a variety of ways. Um, that's been changing over the last, I've been, you know, active uh, full-time for about 28 or 29 years uh, and the, the work has progressed kind of from uh, portrait landscape paintings to to now installations and videos and, and everything in between so so uh, I'm just on a constant exploration to, to see what might happen um, it's about living a life and trying to make it as meaningful as possible. 
some some people might be surprised to learn that you you haven't always been an artist and right. you left art school uh, when you were young and worked in uh, in the mining forestry and construction industries in northern Alberta the Klondike and, and the Antarctic could you tell us a bit more about that time and and how that background shaped your artistic practice? Well, I think I was I was in I did two years of art school at the uh, Alberta College of Art, as it was known then. And uh, and I remember there was a visiting artist by the name of uh, George Sawchuk, uh, a folk artist kind of a uh, guy, brought in by uh, Ian Baxter. And I, I he was he was immediately a hero of mine. This uh, this ex logger. Uh, one-legged uh, folk artist, and and he, uh, I asked him one one time, what would you, what kind of advice would you give a young artist? And he said, go out and get a job. So you find out what the real world's all about. To, uh, you know, and I thought, okay, well, it's not what I was expecting as a as an answer to that question, but I, I kind of fairly immediately followed that advice and went out and, and worked, realizing that I also needed to, uh, you know, to build a place to do this, because I was, you know, if, I, if I'm going to be an artist uh, and we know that, you know, my father had always told me it's pretty hard to make a living as an artist. And so I thought, but there's got to be a way. There has to be a way. To do that, let's cut out as many expenses as possible. To do that, let's buy some land, build a house. And to do that, I needed to get a job. So I worked for 14 years uh, running heavy equipment in uh, you know, the far north and the far south and, uh, and everything in between. And, and after 14 years, I, I told my wife when I met her that I, I think I was 23 when I met her. I said, when I'm 30, I'm going to be an artist. And uh, when I turned 30, I got offered this crazy job in Antarctica, building the southernmost earthen airstrip in the world. And uh, I couldn't turn it down. So I went there for about four months. And when I got back, I got offered the job for the following season. And Teresa said, uh, you're 30. Now you can chase around for the rest of your life, or you can do the thing you said you were going to do. And that was the last job I ever had. So it's never too late, you're saying. Never too late, yeah. Yeah. In... Um in an interview, um, Ship of Life from 2004, which I think was by John Grande, if I'm okay, not mistaken, yeah. Yeah. Um, you said that you had, you had cut down more trees than most people in the world have done. So considering your interest in the, in the reuse of materials and the environmental themes in your, in your work, I was wondering how how that shift in, in your life thinking occurred. So you, you mentioned that you had that 30 years old kind of 
limits and goals? Yeah, I think, I mean, I was probably always conscious of the destruction that I was creating in the, you know, when I was in construction. And I, I mean, I guess at some point it, it, it got overwhelming too, right? And I just, I realized early on that I couldn't keep doing this. Uh, but at the same time, when you're a 19-year-old guy, especially, I think, uh, driving a big, heavy machine through the bush is kind of a pretty exciting, macho thing to do. And uh, um, so I, I, you know, I'm, I have always been conscious, but at, towards the end, I actually was a kind of environmentalist, and I became unbearable in the job sites uh, uh, because I was constantly fighting against the whole thing that we were doing, trying to find a more gentle way of doing the work that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I even got fired for refusing to, to knock down some trees one time in a, in a gold mine that I was working in. And, and when I got fired, the, the guy the next day just took down those trees. So like, there's always somebody that will do the work. And um, yeah, so I mean, there's a certain guilt that comes with, with having a history like mine and maybe uh, Guilt has, has fostered my need to recover some of my peace of mind. I think I'm past that now with the, with the community center project, but I think I've sort of, I think I'm at peace in a lot of ways, yeah. You also grew up and, and still continue to live and make your work on the, on the family farm in the Grand Prairie. Why was it important for you to stay in Demet rather than, for instance, move to Toronto or, or New York like a lot of artists do? I think I, I realized uh, that that was my strength. Uh, you know, I've visited our, uh, lots of places in the world, I've been to most of the continents, carried on in various cities and stuff, and I just realized, like, okay, you got to pick somewhere. Uh, may as well pick this thing, which is... Uh, is in your blood somehow. I've been there since I was six years old. Um, and I feel an aff affinity for it that is, it goes right to my marrow. So I start with that. And also, uh, you know, with that kind of like, a, the, the art situation is so unstable in so many ways. To have one aspect of your life be incredibly stable, or now two with, I guess, with my family and stuff, gives you uh, a very solid foundation. And from that, that foundation, you can continue to build strong, uh, you know, potential for mm -hmm. the future. I don't know, it just made complete sense in every way. And I think, uh, you know, looking back on it now, uh, almost 30 years later, that um, that that living out there, uh, when people want to come and see you, they actually want to come and see you because yeah. they have to come a long ways to be there. And if they're coming that far, you will give them the attention that they deserve for that. And and the bonds that we've built with uh, with people in the art world have been really strong and really wonderful. 
uh, and, and the other side of that is that people don't get a chance to get sick of me because they can't, they're not around me all the time. And so they, you, you, you develop some kind of a uh, myth. It's not necessarily true, right? Because you're not accessible. They see you once in a while. So for me, it's been the best thing. And, and, and you know, that leads to other things as well. So you talk about this bond or relationship um, that can be built, and that makes me think about the, um, the art residency program that mm -hmm. you, uh, you created or established in 2015. Could you tell us how this residency was different than uh, other residency programs? Well, I think the biggest part is that it was invita invitation only. Um, people that I uh, was drawn to uh, that I was uh, interested in their work. They generally were relatively youthful and and interested. Um, and it was a basically a non-paying situation. They would yeah. come and, and very, very simple. It was called uh, Common Opulence uh, to talk about, I think, um, the idea that, that wealth is all around us for the taking, really. And the wealth is not necessarily monetary, but it's uh, intellectual. It's uh, an understanding of how hands, how your hands work or can work, your, how you can build your own environment, how you can grow your own food, uh, how you can you can uh, uh, live very lightly on 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 the land, and still be artful in that living. And you know, so I, I was interested in in uh, bringing people closer to an understanding of the land, and since I have a significant amount of land, uh, I, I sort of designated this 150-acre parcel for the exploration of art and community and, and building. And so over the last uh, two years, uh, common opulence and CO2 we had uh, probably uh, close to 40 artists from across Canada and, and further afield, curators, uh, most of which were sort of around 30. And, um, and they lived on the location for a month. And together we built a timber frame, straw bale, little cabin, uh, which is probably about 300 square feet in, you know, uh, with a wood stove. And, and that then can be used by these people, you know, into the future until I croak or lose the land or whatever. It's uh, an ongoing thing. You're still welcoming. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's a kind of a timeshare where these people yeah. have invested their time <coughs> into building this, this, this place. And, and then they can come and stay for a month and it doesn't cost them anything. But there's also no amenities. It's like a, a swimming yeah. hole and a garden and a... And uh, and some woods where you can forage for mus mushrooms, you know, or and they come and they 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 live and they make their work, and so I'm I'm, you know, I create a, a the opportunity for a community to exist, and I'm fed by by the cultural feedback of these people, you know, and and I'm actually involved 
as a result in the contemporary art world because they're all contemporary artists. Yep. You know, some of them are in the Smithsonian, some of them are, you know, uh, RBC award winners, and they're like they're amazing variety of people. You know, so that keeps me excited about the art world, and it's a real thing because you're not. There's nothing fake about it. It's a bunch of people living in the bush, right? Some and they have to cook their own meals. Yeah. Anyway, I could neutral, go on. Neutral territory in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like, which is not an art gallery or an opening or, you know. Exactly. And so the campfire discussions are, uh, you know, lots of fun, of course, and lots of partying. But, but uh, there's also, like, you know, talking about all the things that are, that are uh, relevant right now. Um, you know, right from environmental to, to uh, women's issues and all kinds of stuff. So it's like, you know, it's pretty important for a guy that's almost 60 to, uh, to be aware of the, of the changes in the world and what's, what's happening and, and uh, how things are viewed. You're also very engaged and, and, and committed to your own community. Right. Can you share with me uh, a bit more, you know, your involvement in the in the creation and the building of um, Demit's new cultural center? I would add, why did Demit need a, a new cultural center? Um, well, it, uh, you know, when I was a kid, when I was, uh, you know, six years old to when I was a teenager, it was a fairly vibrant little tiny community. Uh, it it has no public buildings except for the, you know, the school, the one-room school that had been turned into a community hall, and and when that started to fall apart, when I was like whatever, 18 years old, uh, somebody else built another dance hall for square dancing, and uh, at some point, like I haven't been involved in the community aspect of things, but I, because there was nothing going on. And in 19, I don't know, in 2007, I believe, I got a call from one of my neighbors saying, like, uh, yeah, so there's, you know, would you be interested in coming to a meeting here, an emergency meeting in our community? And it was, uh, became, you know, we went, my wife and I, and there was like six people at this meeting, like nobody came, and representing two families. Uh, and I realized that, you know, we found out that the community center was full of black mold and squirrels and whatever. And also that nobody cared. And there was nothing going on. You couldn't rent the hall out to anybody for $100. And I was sitting at that meeting, and I just had a public commission that I'd actually done fairly well on, and I had some money in the bank for the first time in decades. And I was sitting at that meeting going, nobody cares. I care. Uh, the the pine, pine beetles are killing all of the pine trees. I'm interested in, you know, building with timber. I'm interested in sustainability. If nobody cares, then maybe my caring will have some weight and I'll be able to do Maybe we should build the most beautiful community center that anybody's ever seen in the middle of nowhere. And I went home with that idea, and I, I presented it to, to Teresa, my, my partner. And she said, oh, my God, do we have to? 
Like, are you sure? Because she knew what it was in for. And um, the other, the other th evaluation that came with that was, I knew that I was going to be there for the rest of my life in that little place. And I didn't like my community. Everything else was functioning well. My land, my house, my family, everything was good, right? I loved all of those things, but I, my community was just not anything to be proud of. There was nothing happening. Do I want to be 80 years old surrounded by a bunch of people that don't really talk to each other? And you know, this, this feeds back into building the lifeline fence, right? The lifeline fence is actually something that keeps me in that place and it gives me a, gives me a big perspective. I build an eight-foot section every year for the rest of my life. And when I started, I went, oh my God, I'm actually stuck here. <laughs> when you're stuck somewhere, then you start to care about it. And when you start to care about it, then you start to do something about it. And you start to set the direction of, or potentially at least head in the direction of making it what you want, just like you would plant trees in your yard or make a garden. So four years later, we have a $2.5 million community center, which is now rented out every single weekend in the summer for $1,800. And it's packed, and it's successful financially, and it's completely paid for. And it's got solar panels on it. It produces all of its own electricity. It's made out of straw bales and pine beetle kill timbers, and it has a music series. There's thousands of people come to Demet in the middle of nowhere over the last six years. And I'm not even involved anymore. I mean, I clean the eavesdrops, and I... I, I chopped some wood. And did that change the, um, your relationship with your neighbors or the community? Or yeah, it was a, it was a it was a disaster <laughs> oh. in in a lot of ways uh, because uh, people wonder what your motivations are. They don't understand that I have this really long range view of what a community should be or what I want out of my life. A lot of people are there because they can't be somewhere else. They'd rather be in Hawaii or in Mexico or something. I don't want to be anywhere else. I want yeah. to be there. Uh, what I have found is I am now surrounded by young families that have moved into the area, some of whom have told me they moved to that spot because of this hall. Children that come up and hug us. There's like They just had a Christmas concert there last week. You know, there's 20 new babies around, right? And, and young parents, they meet their young mothers, they meet there every Friday. And there's kids running around, uh, there's yoga, there's, there's uh, you know, sustainability courses yeah. and environmental or, organic farming conferences, and like solar conferences. Like, it's crazy, right? In the middle of nowhere. nowhere. The nearest town is like 20 kilometers away. It's a village of like 700 people. So, yes, I played a very large role in that, as did my wife, Teresa, and a few other neighbors. And uh, I'm thrilled about what's happening. Your land has, has a direct connection to, to a lot of your artwork. And in fact, aspects of it um, are officially copyrighted as, as artworks. How did that come about? 
Well, officially copyrighted is maybe an overstatement, but mm. I did claim copyright on it, which means that I see it the same as a painting. Yeah. You know, I've organized this piece of land to be in a certain organization, I mm -hmm. guess. And when I was confronted by, like we were, we were hounded by oil companies for decades and loggers and whatever to, to clear cut the place, to, uh, to uh, put pipelines in, to seismic. And at one point, uh, they wouldn't take no for an answer. It was Alliance Pipeline. They wouldn't take no for an answer. And, uh, and I just kept saying, no, you can't come across. And they were going to take me to arbitration, which meant that they would uh, expropriate the land because the Alberta government at that time uh, was very supportive of any kind of industry and oil, oil uh, exploration uh, with very few sort of uh, uh, parameters. And I just said, no, you can't come. And they said, well, we're coming across. You know you live in Alberta, and Ralph is on our side. So I said, you're not coming across. And if you do, you'll be hit with the biggest lawsuit you've ever had. And they kind of looked at me like I was some dumb farmer. And, like I own officially the top six inches of my land on my title. That's what it says. I don't own the mineral rights. And I said, OK, that's fine. But don't touch the top six inches. You alter the top six inches. Yeah. That is my artwork. And that is a copyright infringement, infringement of my moral rights. And they looked at me like, yeah, you can't do that, can you? And I said, try me. And they came back the next day and asked me how much money I wanted. I said, it's not about money. It's about principles. It's about if I let you come through here with a pipeline and you give me a bunch of money for that crossing, I can look at that line for the rest of my life and it'll show me what my values are worth. Yeah. And so they went around. And have you heard of other people, um, you know, or cases like that, who uh, who took your approach, or? I was inundated by uh, people um, wanting to uh, find out how I did that, and to the point where I, I just couldn't even respond. Like it was thousands from around the world, and I just couldn't. There was no physical way that I could respond to these people, and I also thought. Sometimes it's better if they're just inspired and they find their own way. Like, don't say a word. Just be there. Do your thing the way you know how. Defend the thing that you care about. And let them find out what it is that they care about. I'm not going to go build a sculpture in somebody else's place because maybe they're just after money. I know what I'm after, and I know how far... I will go to protect or defend certain aspects. I can't tell that for you or for the next person. Um, so I actually stopped responding to people and just in the hopes that they would you find your way. Is it your grandfather's orchard? Is it your, you know, the trees on the side of the road? Is it, um, you know, is it a building that, that, that you crafted with your own hands? What are you going to defend? And I think if we all do that in our way, they can't, they can't stop us. Like, it's, they can't stop us. And, and the resistance will grow to the point where actually the grove of trees that your grandfather planted 
have, have, you can't put a, a monetary value on that. Or the artwork that you spent, you know, when your kids were little, digging into the ice or into the... How do you replace a 28-year-old picket fence, which has lichens growing on the far side of it? You can't. I can't get those 28 years back. I can't ever go back to when I was 30. And I think if we all start to understand that, then we're going to start defending this, like, what are we doing? Like, let's give our heads a shake. What in God's name are we doing to this planet? Do you right? think people stop caring? It's overwhelming. We all want the things, you know, like the phones and the shirts and the, and the you know, whatever, cars, because that's constantly being pounded onto us that we want it. And, and the end result is uh, we're not any happier. Like, we are not happier than we were before the Internet. As a matter of fact, maybe it's going the other way. Our idea of, of self-worth and dignity and, and, and ethics is eroded to the point where we can have somebody like the President of the United States that we have right now. It's just like, are you kidding me? It's like somebody that cares nothing about the world yeah. or the future. Um, and, and, I mean, at some point, we're going to wake up, I guess, but, you know, maybe it's too late. But if we start to understand what the actual values are, and that happens when you sit back and look at what's around you, who's around you, and how could it be more beautiful, maybe? How could it be more poetic? How could it be that everybody feels secure and hopeful instead of this, this smog, uh, noise? Uh, you know, extinctions. Simpler, simpler actions, or um, or maybe non-actions. Yeah, non. I mean, there's something to be said for not doing anything. Yeah. To sit there and just look, you know, meditate on what it is that we actually have. Now we've talked a bit more about um, about your background, so listeners get a chance to know uh, to know you a little bit better. But I'd like to dive into the the core of your practice now, and and your earlier works were were primarily paintings. But since you've worked more in uh, in sculpture, installation, and and, and video, um, what was the reasoning behind behind this transition? Do 
Do some mediums offer more opportunities than others? I think, uh, I mean, maybe the, the painting was a formative period where you, you know, you're taking in. I did a lot of plein air painting outside, you know, and, and, yeah. and set up my little French easel and, and paint outside. I did hundreds of paintings, trying to learn how to paint. And what I didn't realize was that I was learning to paint, I guess, because of just practicing. Like the first thing I understood when I quit my job in 1990 to become a, an artist was that I didn't know what being an artist actually was and that I actually wasn't a very good painter. And I called myself a painter. So then I had to learn really fast. So that's what I did. I, I painted. But, but what I found was I wasn't learning how to paint as much as I was learning how to see. And through the plein air painting, my seeing raised awareness of what actually I was interested in when I would get into a, sta you know, a state of, of meditation or some kind of mm -hmm. like where time would just disappear and I'd be just yep. in this joyful state of, and you know, then, then all at the, at the end of the day, there'd be a painting that actually was kind of good, right? And at some point, I realized that, well, you know, I'm trying to describe this thing in front of me, this, this land, and how I understand it through a painting. And it's not coming anywhere close. It's so much more than what I could put onto this canvas that I, I kind of, I was like kind of frozen. Okay, well, how do I make the, how do I get the experience of being in this space and convey that? It can't be done with just a painting or a description of. I remember mm -hmm. there was a, uh, an artist, John Gibbons, I think, from England, who was at one of the workshops that I was at. And I, I asked him to come for a studio visit. At, it was, I think it was at Emma Lake. And he says, are you sure? And I went, yeah. So he came, he said, okay, well, I think it's all shit. I showed, I was so proud of my paintings. You know, I had like 40 paintings that I'd done in two weeks. He says, it's crap. If I wanted to see this, I would go out in the boat and I would see it. I wouldn't look at your paintings. And I realized he was right. It's the best criticism I ever got. And, and I, I, I thought, okay, well, what is that language that I need to use then? And then, I, then anything was open. I, I, I thought, okay, I'll use whatever. I don't mm -hmm. know. And I started to dig holes in the ice and I started to to just play as, as a child plays and feeling guilty that I wasn't creating a product. I didn't even have good photographs or documentation of this stuff. I was just like exploring. The possibilities. Yeah, just to see yeah. what, if you do this, what happens? If you burn that yeah. thing and you leave it there in the rain, what happens? If you put a piece of wood over there or if you, I don't know, myriad of things. But I think that's what art is for, you know, yeah. offering these possibilities, yeah. these perspectives on, of understanding the world, right? Yeah. And how do you, how do you, like, what is your take on this planet, right? What is your perspective? And then if you can honestly describe what your experience is of being alive, 
then that will be unique and it'll be it'll be your art, right? Um, well, I guess to jump on the, on what what you just said, um, when I'm thinking about your work, like Lifeline, for instance, defense piece, or maybe more recently, um, Earth and Sun, that'll mm -hmm. be in the um, in the exhibition, and how they how they consider the the passage of time and and the effect of uh, of natural forces and 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 I guess our place uh, within those forces. It was useful for me to consider other artists who might have maybe similar approaches so that I could get um, um, maybe um, um, a better understanding or mm -hmm. uh, um, maybe connected with something that I knew. And so I thought about James, James Turrell, for instance, right. who is mostly known for his, uh, his light and color installations. But since, uh, since 79, 1979, he, um, he's been working on the... Uh, um, what he called um, the the Roden Crater yeah. project, which is built on uh, uh, on top of a, a dead volcano in uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and and so Turrell built uh, passageways and and viewing spaces in, inside the crater as as a way for the viewer to to appreciate the natural light and and of course the celestial events, um, so an an experiential space. Um, and so the rooms and, and, and passages inside uh, the crater focus on the, on this contemplation of time and humanity's place mm -hmm. on Earth. So I was wondering how would you like to respond to, um, to, to this work in, in relation to your own practice? Well, I think he's one of the greatest artists alive, actually, James Turrell. Um, I don't think I've ever seen or experienced a piece of his, and I've experienced a few of them over the years, that I that hasn't moved me on some some really deep level. I think they just he gets it, and I think he's doing it for the right reasons. And I, I think you know we can only aspire to have that same kind of communication of of our deepest uh, sort of admirations, I guess, of the universe or of the. Uh, of everything that is outside of us, you know? Like he thinks really big, I don't know, you know? There's nothing more beautiful than a, just a clear window into the sky. If, if, you, if you isolate it, it's just like, okay, there's nothing actually greater than that. Why would you try to make anything except isolating that so you can actually spend yep. the time to look at it? And I, I see, you know, I would have, if, if I had a piece that I was that I would say is tending in that direction. It would be like the ice boat, you know, where I, I'm carving something that is water and it floats on water and it's, it will hold you and you can see through it. You can see water, you can smell water, you can, you can experience the beauty of it and the next day it's frozen. It disappeared. It's frozen again. Oh, and, yeah. and, and then in the spring it's gone. <clears throat> and then there's no trace. And, mm -hmm. and you don't have to feel anything except like awe. Just be there. Yeah. There's nothing. And, and I think it, that that piece for me would be uh, just a, there's no residue except the memory and the joy of and, and the experience. The exhibition um, will also feature um, uh, a work that you previously um, uh, shown called Requiem, 
That's a piece from 2000, 2005, which is a long corridor um, crossing the gallery space made out of uh, thick walls of papers, uh, pulp, and um, hanging from the ceiling. And it was previously in, installed in a, in, a, in a different setting. And, and one, one could think that, um, that this piece in particular considers, the, I guess, the destruction necessary for the growth or, and, and, and rebirth of a um, forest. And with its physicality and, and its title, the piece is, in, in every sense of the word, heavy mm. um, due to the dimension of the work, the physicality of the work. And of course, because it's called Requiem. And when I think about Requiem, um, I see that as an act of remembrance, I guess, almost like an, an hymn for the, for the dead, I guess. So with that understanding, would you say that, that this work and, and possibly its meaning um, changed for you since its creation? Because it's been, it's been shown in a, in a specific context. It's going to be shown now again in a different space. Yeah, I've used, I mean, I've used those materials a lot in the last uh, 15 years, and, and it's basically just raw pulp from the pulp mill. Yeah. And, and to me, the, the idea of, uh, I mean, I, you know, Requiem, I guess, for this piece is a, is a working title, but, but it's going to be very different, I think, than any other incarnation. I've used it as, you know, contemporary dance sets. I've used it as... Uh, uh, installation. I've used it as drawings, uh, surfaces. This this time, I think I have a different understanding at this stage in my life too about what I th what I believe death to be. And death to me is, uh, you know, if you've lived a full existence, and it hasn't been, you, you know, you haven't been robbed of of in your youth or something then death is actually maybe the most beautiful thing that can happen. And the next journey, right? I'm not affiliated with any kind of religion at all, but if I had a, if I had, had a belief, it would be closest to Zen or Buddhist or Taoist or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Stoic or something like that, where death is just another existence. It's a transition. Yeah, it's a, a transition. No, who knows what it is? It doesn't matter what it mm -hmm. is. But I'm I'm not I'm kind of in a way looking forward to it. Like it's like it's kind of exciting to me yeah. as a possibility. Now we don't know if uh, if what's his name? Uh, the Mike the the Apple guy, what was his name? Steve Jobs. Yeah. He either said Oh wow his last words or oh ow <laughs> We're not sure exactly what he said. Well, it's two different directions. <laughs> anyway, uh, I don't feel as tragic about things these days as I did 10 years ago yeah. in a weird way, even though all indications are that we're kind of like in a big mess. And for some reason, I realize maybe it's because I feel like I'm doing what I can and I've done what I can. And I continue to wherever I have power to do something, but it's not in a worried way or a concerned way it's, or in a panic way. It's more like, okay, well, I can do this right now. And so that's what I'll do. Do you think that um, 
you know, after the, um, the previous fires, the recent fires, um, the Slave Lake fire, for instance, in 2011, Fort McMurray fire in 2016, or more recently, William Lake fire, do you think that we would have a different look at this piece that would change the meaning of this piece? I don't know uh, if it's if if I even go that far to think like that. I mean, I live in the forest. As Fort Mac was burning, I'm going. Well, maybe this place is gone tomorrow too, right? Like we live in really dense spruce forest, and uh, if it ever started, there'd be no stopping it. I would lose absolutely everything. And so there's more like a preciousness of being alive, of having you know, being surrounded by these things that you're familiar with, uh, whether it's inside or outside the, the window. I understand now, you know, I'm 58 years old, I, I understand that things need to die so that other things can live. And that to exterminate life on this planet would be extremely hard, uh, completely. You could sure exterminate a lot of it fairly easily, but but to actually sterilize it, yeah. it's going to be pretty hard. So something will happen. Uh, our pine trees all died within a five-year period, and we had you know two-foot pine trees, a hundred feet tall, all around the house. They are now part of that community hall. Out of that death came this new life for the community out of this paper that comes from the pulp mill comes a vessel really of of like it's like a it's like a pulse as a person walks through this corridor the paper will move along with that person you may not be able to see the person but you will have an understanding that that individual is passing through there mm -hmm. by the waves waves yeah. that they come at least that's the way I envisioned it this, at this point. I've never made them that, yeah. like that before. But, so I don't know if that answers yeah, that. Yeah, it's but. worth mentioning that uh, uh, we're having this conversation before. <laughs> before the installation. <laughs> before it's even installed. Yeah, or, let's see if it actually works. So yeah, works. so we're still in the process. Lots of your work um, uh, seem to incorporate elements of performance. Uh, the Watchers um, is an early example where... Um, where your journey to, throughout Canada. So you, you took these uh, these massive figures in your truck and and kind of um, traveled around Canada and that, that elicited um, a variety of reactions and, and stories from people. Do you have any any stories to uh, to share on, on, you know, on some of these uh, impressions? Oh my God, I have so many stories, you don't get me started. <laughs> Maybe just, <laughs> just one, pick one. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, I didn't intend to circle Canada with these figures. I had an exhibition in Hamilton, Ontario that they'd invited me to present at. And when I got there and the show was finished, I realized I was more than halfway across Canada. And then I just kept going. And one thing led to another and Eventually, they went on an icebreaker through the Northwest Passage, and and then I realized, my God, these things are actually going to circle the entire country, and it's just like that was never the intention. It was just like you start moving in a direction, and the powers that be start to tell you, 
give you options. And those options end up, you know, if you pick the right ones, they become the biggest teachers, the, the, uh, and they give you this odyssey that is like this, this crazy experience. I've always wanted to see all of Canada. Now I've seen like just about all of Canada, right, in, in, in some form, and I understand it in a certain way. That is, and it was fun, and it was like free, and it was like, you know. But he was meant to be, he was, um, um, you must have had a lot of determination, right? Because they're bulky, they oh, it's are. it's brutal, it's the stupidest exactly. thing. Like you're burning $100 worth of gas every four hours on an artist's income. It's just like, forget it, like, you know, you can't do this. But, but what's weird is, when it looks hopeless, and your truck is broke down in, on, on the ice in, in Inuvik. Somebody comes along and, and leads you mm -hmm. to the solution. If you're open to it and you don't panic. And everything that you need is right within your reach. Your reach, yeah. And it's not until the journey is complete that you actually understood what you even did. Uh, and it, it gets... Um, I mean, it's just like, it's just this incredible situation where you become more and more in awe of how rich and exciting this whole life is, mm -hmm. if you trust it, right? So we're moving on to the, uh, the last part of the uh, interview, which is about the exhibition itself. And, you know, we were talking about the performance um, in, uh, the, you know, the importance of uh, performance in, uh, in your work. And in, in consideration to that, um, there is another work titled Bell, which initially was meant to have people swing on it and manipulate it. And I know it might not be the case in this particular exhibition, but I was curious to know about this element of interactivity and and sound as well. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a little bit of that in, uh, well, a lot of that in Reservoir as well. But thinking about Bell, you know, I was wondering about how um, sound was important for the gallery visitor to, to experience. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, that Bell piece, well, I, I knew that I wanted it to have to emit sound because it fills a, a space in a, in a beautiful way. Uh, but I also wanted 
to take away the idea of this sterile art thing, right? Yeah. You know, where where I was in a in a gallery in France somewhere, and there's this very tactile, big bronze sculpture. But you can't touch and, it. And I went to touch it, and the guy is like down my throat. I'm going like it's my fingertip on a on a on a rough piece of bronze. Are you serious? And I'm kind of like this is this is not the way I want my work experienced. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously there's things that are fragile, but then there's things that are really clunky. I mean, if I can't cook an egg on my on my solar panel artwork, then why bother, right? Yeah. And I wanted this this uh, this bell to gain the patina of the people that touched it. So eventually, over time, it would it would have like fingernail marks and and smoothed off where people slid on and off. It you ride it like a bucking bronco at some kind of cowboy bar, you know. And the chain makes noise, and the and the bell makes noise, and and, and we used it in in a dance piece at the Canada Dance Fest as well. And, and so it it has the, the traces of all of the people that have been around it. Uh, and that's when it starts to get interesting over over the, the decades of like that bell is probably 20 years old. Uh, it's exactly 20 years old actually, now that I think about it. And it's starting to to get a grand feel to it. It's a nice smell. It's a nice sound. It's a nice memory. This time it's not going to be because the ceiling can't handle it. So. But I wanted, I guess I wanted listeners to know that yeah, right. it was meant that way. Yeah. <laughs> you titled the, the exhibition Songs for Pythagoras, who was an ancient Greek mathematician and philosopher who discovered that music could be translated into uh, mathematical sequences. So he also, he also believed that music was, you know, purification or medicine for the soul. And music um, or art and logic or math might seem uh, maybe in opposition at first, I guess. Um, but for the Greeks, they were all part of um, finding things like the perfect proportions or accessing the, subli the sublime or the most ideal or beautiful form. Why did you choose to title the exhibition Songs for Pythagoras? For all of those reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at that. <laughs> For all because of those of exact okay. those same yeah. reasons. I mean, he was a, apparently, I mean, his school of thought was, you know, explored everything from reincarnation to the music of the spheres. And and, and I, I don't know, I, I heard a story about where he's he's walking past a blacksmith shop and, the, and he hears the ringing of the hammers and there's two different sounds from these two different hammers because of their different sizes. And he, and he comes up with a theory that, that everything in motion creates vibration and sound, and including the spheres, planets, the, the, the solar system. So I think it connects with uh, what you were saying about observation, learning yeah. how to observe and and feel what's things. Happening. Like it's sometimes yeah. observation is just being sensitive enough that any kind of vibration, yeah. any kind of wave. Of any kind will will uh, will you know, you'll sense it, and maybe that's what being in awe of something is. 
is that you sense it, that it's far bigger than you are. It's not anything that you can control, and you can only you can only submit to it. And if you submit, it has the potential to bring in all kinds of fresh light and understanding. So before we we conclude that interview, I do I do have um, one more question to ask you, um, a few more, but. Um, <laughs> Um, I'd like to talk about your connection with uh, with minimalism and uh, and stop for a moment on the, on on the piece called uh, Steel Cube. Um, the work reconstructs a, a palette of 900 pieces of steel um, bars from the, from an industrial fabrication, and this work seems to stand out in in its pure form from the other works. Is there a significance to its weight, dimension, and dimensions and number of uh, of pieces of steel? No. No? <laughs> so the reason I, mean, I ask... I mean, yes, but, <laughs> but, uh, but no. No, okay. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's found material from industrial uh, sources, one source, actually. Each piece, each two pieces are representative of one frack tank for pumping fresh water into the crust of the earth never to return, to remove oil and gas out of the formation. So there's 900, roughly, pieces. It's, 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 I think it's, I don't think it's minimalism at all. I think it's maximalism in, in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, physically yeah, it looks like a simple, yeah. simple stack of steel, which is now so heavy that you can't approach it because the fl gallery floor will collapse, according to the engineers. So we have to stanchion it off. You can't, so it becomes a toxic thing so in a way. it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous just by having, and, and when you think about the weight of that cube, which is only two feet square, but it's, it's, like, it's like almost two tons on a point load of yeah. two foot square. That means that nobody can approach it or it's, it's threatening the structure of the building here, right? And that's what's exciting to me about this yeah. piece. So I don't think it's minimalism, actually. Okay. I mean, as much as I like some of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this thing is so laden with, with uh, undercurrents of, of what we're doing to the planet. Um, to American, American writer and, and activist and curator, uh, Lucy Lippard once said, and, and I quote her, travel is the only context in which some people ever look around. If we spend half of the energy looking at our own neighborhoods, we'd probably learn twice as much. That's fantastic. I thought, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so taking in consideration her words and, and, and the fact that she'll be writing a piece as well for the publication, um, what experience would you like visitors to walk away after um, encountering your exhibition? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love for people to be, uh, if, if they're not already, um, to be aware of what, how astounding it is just even to be alive. How, how absolutely ridiculous it is that we actually even exist 
and that we're conscious of our own existence on this tiny peppercorn of a planet in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Uh, if, if we can just get a sense of how astounding it is that our cell structure keeps itself alive and that the, that the sun provides us with enough resources to do that and that all these little cells understand what they have to do <laughs> and that we're thinking about inhabiting some other solar system yes <laughs> but it's if we can just start to cherish like Lucy says that which is right in front of us and not you know there's there's a there's a saying called waste not want not right and i think we're living in the time of waste want and there's nothing to want it's all right here so i have this little ritual um in the podcast series which is to ask the artist to name the conversation um, so depending on the mood of today and what comes to mind the idea is just to capture this encounter, um, and that will become the title of a podcast. I have no ideas. <laughs> Maybe it's waste not. Waste want. I don't know. That's the last thing I said, I guess. Okay. Well, Peter, um, I very much appreciated this conversation and, and time spent together, and I thank you for it. I got you, because I know you're driving back. So I got you a little box of chocolates <laughs> on the road Thank you. to take with you. Thank you. And I also brought you something, which is really nothing, but it has a little story. Beautiful. It's a skipping stone. And this is something that I, I picked when I was in Cyprus on, um, uh, on the Turkish side, um, on a beach of Cyprus. Right. And I was just amazed by this, um, um, the beach and... Um, the rocks, they were just perfect. And I found what I call the perfect skipping stone. And I, and I hold on to it uh, for the past two years now. Wow. And, um, you know, sometimes I have it in my bathroom, it's there. And, and now that I look at it, I, mean, I remember it to be lighter and very different from, from what I see now. Yeah. But anyway, as you know, um, as, as I know that you uh, like walking and, yeah. and meditating, I thought that I was. Um, uh, I would give that to you, and then next time you're um, in your land and you take a walk, um, because you know when you use a skipping stone, you you make a wish or you have a thought. Yeah. Then you could use it and have a thought. Oh, that's delightful. <laughs> but really, but I will always hold on to it because I thought it was so flat and so yeah. perfect, and so I just keep like touching it. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, let's call the talk Skipping Stone. Okay. So I invite uh, listeners to experience your exhibition, Songs for Pythagoras, at the Art Gallery of Alberta, on display until May 6, 2018, and of course to read the accompanying publication, soon to be released by the AGA. Thank you. Thank you.
Dream Conversation podcast series is a project of the Art Gallery of Alberta. For more information on Peter von Tisenhausen, Song for Pythagoras, or other AGA programming, please visit the website at yoaga.ca. The AGA would like to thank the artist Peter von Tisenhausen, producers Nam Kabeski, Charles Cousins, and Adam Whitford, as well as Sarah Tisdale, Alex Keys, Maggie Barton-Baird, Barry Reed, Manon Godet, Elizabeth Hill, and Laura Ritchie for lending the voices to this podcast.